Good morning and welcome to All Things Jessamine. I'm Doug Fain. On today's program, we're going to rerun a program that we aired back in October of 2015. And the reason is, it was with a lady named Mary Patricia Monahan Mullins. Now, her dad was a former federal judge and POW local attorney here in Nicholasville, Bernard Monahan. And we learned this past week that Mary Patricia passed away. So, to honor her memory, we will replay that program and interview with her here on All all things Jessamine. We'll do that in just a moment. It's just an ordinary day, then the doorbell makes it extraordinary with a delivery from Nicholasville Florist and Gifts. I'm Bobby. And I'm Kelly. All our flowers, plants, and gifts are delivered on time and as beautiful as we'd want for ourselves. Our flowers are fresh daily and arranged when you order. You can call or visit our website. But please come in. You can see our selection of silks and decorations and gifts for the person who has everything at 206 South Main Street, Nicholasville, Martha's Vineyard, Nicholasville, florist and gifts. Since 1951, we've been making ordinary days extraordinary. Good morning and welcome to All Things Jessamine. Glad to have you here on this Saturday morning and looking forward to today's program as we are going to talk to a a lady about a special man that used to live in our community and just so much to talk about. I don't know that we could even fit it in in the time that we have allotted. We want to talk today about a fellow named Bernard Monahan. A lot of people in our community would refer to him as Judge, Judge Monahan. And on the phone today, we have his daughter who lives in Richmond, Virginia, Mary Pat. And welcome, Mary Pat. Glad to have you this morning. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Sorry that we missed each other when you were in town. And uh, I appreciate, though, that you are willing to do this over the phone. You know, your dad and your mom were such well-known people in the Jessamine County community for a number of reasons. And the nice thing about this program is while there are people that listen who remember them, there are a lot of people that listen who did not know them. So we are glad to be able to share the information that we have. Let's start with your dad. Tell us about when he was born and where he was born and how he made it to Jessamine County. He was actually born in Ohio. He was born in Akron, Ohio, where my grandfather was working. My grandfather was a civil engineer, and he uh, traveled to various jobs. This would have been after World War One. Mm-hmm. I recently discovered that they, just before they went to Ohio, they were living in Rockbridge County in um, in Kentucky, and so. They must have gone gone up there for the job, and then my father was born in 1918 there in December. He, he has a December birthday, um, 29th of December. Uh, interestingly, he always said that he married an older woman because my mother was born three days before. <laughs> was that right? Three days? Yeah. They lived in wherever the job was, right. uh, but always kept a foot in Desmond County and Nicholasville and maintained a home home there. Came back, uh, well, uh, during his sort of formative years when he was a schoolboy, he would be in school wherever they were living. Uh, if it was in eastern Kentucky, uh, they'd move from spot to spot, and that um, allowed him to really start out a school year in one grade level, and then when they moved, records were not uh, as consistent or as, as faithful as they are now. Mm-hmm. So when he would go to the next place, um, they would sort of uh, see where 
he was in reading and mathematics and then put him in whatever grade seemed appropriate. So he, he would start out perhaps in the beginning of the second grade year in the fall, and then if they moved mid-year, he might end up finishing up third grade. So his education advanced along that line, and he eventually graduated from high school in Nicholasville when he was 13 years old. Yeah, 13 is just absolutely amazing. Uh, to think that a man would graduate high school at that age. Did he have to wait to get into college because of his age? How did that work? Well, he, he didn't have to wait to get into college. You, he, fortunately, he was he was a, a man of large stature, so being 13, he didn't look like a scrawny 13-year-old. I guess he looked like maybe a 17 or 18-year-old. He went ahead and enrolled at the university, and nobody seemed to mind um, that he was there, and so he just started his studies at the university and plowed on through finishing up graduating when he was 16 years of age. So he finished his university degree by the time most of us were, you know, still in high school. Right. An interesting side note to that is he also drove the car their car to Lexington <laughs> to attend school, but the year that he was a senior, he didn't turn 16 until December, so the first semester of his senior year in college, he had to take the bus or hitch a ride because he wasn't old enough to get a driver's license, which that's amazing. Impediment, yeah. And then he went on and enrolled in uh, in law school, finishing law school when he was 19. Now, there's where the age problem came to uh, back to kind of um, face him down because he was not old enough to take the bar exam. The bar exam required you to be 21 years of age. And he was 19. He was 19. So what did he do? Well, he went to work for uh, clerking and working in the office of a fine gentleman named Clem Kelly, Clement Kelly, over in Lexington. And finally, I guess enough was enough. The state bar allowed him to take the exam at age 20 and then continue to work until he was 21 when they granted him his license and he went up went on to open his own law practice there in Nicholasville on Court Row. Well, one of the things though we want to point out, and I, I have this information, thank goodness, because of a, of a Jessamine County history book that was published, but it says here that he was believed to be the youngest person to ever graduate from the University of Kentucky with a full four-year degree and also believed to be the youngest graduate of the law school at the University of Kentucky. And I, I would almost really well to bet that that record probably still stands. I, I suspect so. Perhaps some child prodigy has come along for the, the bachelor's degree, but I, I, I doubt that too many people go through law school. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was. Right. He, he often said, I, I know when my brother and I were coming along, not that, not that we could have ever matched his record, but he said uh, that the mistake about that or the downside to what he did was that he just didn't have a lot of time to be a, a child. Mm-hmm. He wasn't unhappy about it. He just thought that he, his expression was you needed to stop and smell the roses along the way. So wow. I, think, I think he he regretted that little piece of it, but loved, loved his law practice always, and that was, you know, very important to him. Now, he opened his law office, as you said, uh, on Court Row around 1940, and something happened a couple of years later when his uh, office had to close because something started and he was involved in. That was the military, correct? 
Exactly. Life got in the way. He and my mother were courting, I guess mm-hmm. is the word at the time, and uh, I've often heard him tell the story that she was living at home with uh, her parents out off of, or her father out off of uh, the Harrodsburg Road, the family farm there, and they were driving on a Sunday and heard on the radio that Pearl Harbor had been, um, had been uh, attacked. And he said, well, that does it, we're in. So he knew at that point that um, he was going to be serving some time in the military. So that's exactly what happened. He closed his office and he joined the Army Air Corps Division. At that time, there wasn't really an Air Force, but the Army Air Corps group was the um, the predecessor of our, our Air Force now. And uh, he went off to train in Florida Shortly thereafter began his training. My mother and he were married before he um, he went overseas. She and her sister took a train down to Florida, and uh, they were married in Florida. And then he um, he in just a few few months, maybe less than a year, um, he did he was sent overseas with his group to uh, he was a navigator on a B seventeen airplane, and uh, that's where he was, flying out of London, um, and she went back to, continued to work, but went back home and stayed with her her folks out on the farm. Now, the, he went in, according to the information I have, he, he married your mother in 1942, he was already enlisted in the, uh, as an Air, Army Air Force cadet by that time. Correct. That is correct. And he, in 1944, two very significant things happened, and I'm going to take them out of order. The first one happened on August 29th. What happened on that day? Well, on that day, I, I appeared uh, into the, the life of the Monaghan family. So the first child was born. Mary Patricia was born August 29th, forty-four. But, unfortunately, he couldn't be there. He could not be there. Because prior to that, on February 21st, something very significant happened. Tell us about that. Well, on, uh, on I believe it was, I'm trying to think which, which bombing, um, bombing run they were making, maybe their 14th or 15th bombing run, his plane was shot down uh, over Germany. Mm-hmm. And he and and a number of his crew members were able to parachute out, but five members of the crew sadly um, were killed and did not survive the um, the downing of that plane. He was able to get out and uh, parachuted down and was actually injured. He was shot um, while he was floating down. That must have been a most unpleasant experience. Of course. You're just a sitting dock, and certainly that's not not the way um, the rules of of engagement are supposed to be conducted. He did survive. Uh, he was captured and taken to a prison camp on the Baltic, and that's where he was when I was born. The awful part, I think, for my mother was that, and for her, for his parents, was that they received telegram that he had been shot down and he was missing in action and so there was a period of several weeks before they actually knew that he had survived and where he was. Gosh. And it was through the Red Cross that then became um, um, one of my mother's pet charity groups that Mm -hmm. she supported because the Red Cross was just invaluable to the family throughout his time that he spent in the German prison camp until um, the Russians overran the, the uh, border and 
liberated the prison camps. You know, I have been uh, very fortunate to be able to emcee some veteran ceremonies in our community. One of the things that has become very evident to me, and even even now in this story you told, you know, it's a great thing that we honor those people who uh, were POWs or MIAs or killed in action. But we, we can't forget the effect that it had on their families back home. How terrible that must have been, not only to not know whether or not he was alive, but a mother who has had a child that he hasn't seen and may never see has got to be an awful experience to go through. I think so. I often think about that when we talk about the great generation, and clearly it was the great generation, but that great generation had a lot of people waiting waiting for them to come home. I've heard the stories of the, the letters which um, they exchanged. They were really, it was just almost a, a postcard-sized piece of paper that could be folded over on itself, and when they would send them out or in through the Red Cross, if the um, if the German authorities thought there was something in there that they didn't want shared, they would black it out. So you didn't always get the uh, full information. And then there were small boxes of um, food substances like chocolate and powdered milk and things that the Red Cross allowed families to send to the prisoners of war, but they didn't get to them. They they were um, withheld from the prisoners. So it was a really tough. It was hard. And your mother had to be a very strong woman to have gotten through that herself. The good news is, as you referred to earlier, is uh, somewhere around 1945, the Russian army uh, did liberate that camp, and he got to come back home. And when he came home, he received a number of things. According to our information, he received the air medal with the oak leaf cluster. He received his purple heart. But more importantly, he got to meet you. He did get to meet me, but let me correct um, one thing. He did not receive his Purple Heart at that time, although he was certainly entitled to it. For whatever reason, the medical records just never quite caught up with, with him as he moved along, and his Purple Heart was not awarded until 51 years after. Really? That's right. He received this Purple Heart in 1996. Wow. And it was through the efforts of um, Scotty Basler's office um, there. They facilitated it. There was a fire in the record center in uh, St. Louis that destroyed a lot of the records. And so he had, there was difficulty in proving his um, injuries. Mm -hmm. But he had saved as a souvenir his. POW papers and had it framed on the wall of his office. And in that document, it um, it confirmed the injury. So as soon as they got a copy of that, his his medal was awarded and he treasured it very greatly. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm great. I'm glad that he finally got that 51 years later. That's pretty amazing. Well, before we go on down the road with his life, let's stop just a moment because we've talked about you and I'm sure there's people out there listening who thought, well, I remember her. Tell us what's happened with uh, with Mary Pat all these years. What? Tell us a little bit about your life. Well, of course, grew up in Nicholsville and attended Nicholsville Elementary School and uh, then Jessamine County High School. My class um, was the first class to start as freshmen at Jessamine County High School, but the school was still up on Maple Street. We mm-hmm. went to um, elementary school, and then my first year of high school was there. 
before we moved out to the building out on the, I'm not sure what the name of the road is. Yes, on Wilmore Road, yes. Wilmore Road. Mm-hmm. And I uh, graduated from high school there in 1962 and went off to my freshman year at a small junior college in Bristol, Virginia called Sullins College. Mm-hmm. I only stayed one year at Sullins because I became interested in um, pursuing a career in pharmacy while I was there. And the, at the time I was um, doing that, there was a very specific uh, curriculum that you had to follow. You needed two years in a liberal arts school heavy on science and, um, and math and physics before you could go into pharmacy school and then three years in the pharmacy program to um, be awarded a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy. So I realized if I had stayed at Sullins a second year, I would not have been able to get some of the science courses I required. So I came back to the University of Kentucky and then went on into pharmacy school at, at UK. And served an apprenticeship at a place that a lot of people remember. I certainly did. I've enjoyed looking at the, um, you grew up in Jefferson County website, and I see lots of pictures of those of us who grew up in that time uh, in Hemphill's Pharmacy, but mm-hmm. that Hemphill's not only became my social hangout when I was in high school, but later that was where I did my apprenticeship right. with uh, Buddy Hager and Joe McMurtry, two fine pharmacists who are now deceased, who um, owned that store jointly, and they um, monitored my preceptorship, and I became a licensed pharmacist. And you mentioned that Facebook page. A lot of the pictures I have seen of you as a teenager were in that pharmacy, taken by your friend Tom Ashley, who I understand you finally got to meet up with again after all these years. I did. I did. We had a reunion just recently. I I had dinner with uh, Tom and his wife, Linda, and their lovely granddaughter just back in early Mm -hmm. August. We had a lot of catching up to do because it had been 50 years since (laughs) we had actually had a face-to-face meeting. But yes, there were lots of after school and Sunday mornings uh, spent in Hemphills when folks would gather after church or on the way home, we'd stop and kind of socialize there and uh, hang out. Now, around 1946, you had another big event happen in your home. You decided, well, you didn't decide, but I guess it was decided that you should have a sibling, and you had a brother come along, right? Absolutely. I think my parents got busy pretty pretty quickly after my father returned from Germany, and my brother was born in March of 1946, and we grew up there in Nicholasville. He went on to um, attend the University of Kentucky um, after he graduated from high school there, and and then he went to medical school at the University of Louisville. He married a local girl, Katie Kraus, and um, they had four sons eventually. And then he went on uh, later to practice medicine in London, Kentucky. Now, he was a third, Bernard Monaghan III, right? But a lot of people knew him as Pete. They did. And how did that come about? Well, you have to be careful about the nicknames that you apply to your children because sometimes they stick. He loved to run around with his cap guns hostered on one on each hip and wearing a cowboy hat and shooting cap pistols. I'm not even sure they have those anymore. <laughs> he was referred to in the family as Two-Gun Pete, and then it just got shortened to Pete. <laughs> and that stuck. I think there were a lot of folks that really w- weren't always aware of what his name right. was, even his, um, his 
of patients later on in his practice referred to him as Dr. Pete. So. Well, and the people that I have had uh, in the, in town in Jessamine County referred to him have always called him Pete. That, that's just yeah. the way they knew him at. Well, now, your dad, you two were born, the family was established, and he had come back home from the war and uh, decided he needed to probably go to work to support these kids. So let's, let's rejoin his life in 1946 when I think that's when he was elected county attorney. Yes, it was shortly after that. He he opened his practice again, uh, practicing in, in Nicholasville, uh, but this time he was practicing in an office that a uh, small white, um, looks like a house, it looks like it was a house at one time, uh, right next to the Christian church on Maple Street. Mm-hmm. And he went into practice with John C. Watts, who... Mm-hmm was a representative from the state of Kentucky for many, many years and eventually was a second-ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee, a long-tenured legislator. And Daddy practiced uh, there with uh, John, and he ran for county attorney, and he did serve in that um, in that capacity. And a side note about Congressman Watts, his home was in an area of the community that some of our new listeners would know as the Orchard, located there now in addition to a number of houses. That would be the area where the Walmart is on down towards Main Street where the car wash is, and it was an actual orchard uh, that he had there, and I could remember that big white house down that lane uh, as growing up seeing it for many years. Yes, I've been there to pick apples in that orchard. They would had a great a great big orchard stretching on the hillside there. Now, he was county attorney, and he continued with his practice and served uh, as a Democratic election commissioner for years, but we fast forward a little bit to 1961, because some Something happened, and you and I were talking prior to this uh, discussion about uh, the day and how it was significant, but he was appointed to a pretty important post. Let's talk about that. Well, he had been appointed as um, as a federal district attorney in the early 60s, mm-hmm. um, and so he served in that role, and I'm sure it was through his connections with uh, Congressman Watts and that he, his name was put into, um, into nomination for that role. While he was serving in the, um, in the, on the district court side out of Lexington, an opening came up for a federal judgeship, and his name was put forward for that judgeship, and he was appointed a United States federal district judge by uh, President John Kennedy. Mm-hmm. As far as we can tell, he was the last, if not one of the last, uh, and sometimes they appoint judges at the same time. Right. They will go up for congressional approval at the same time. But he was appointed by John Kennedy, and the day that he was sworn in, November 22nd of um, 1963, we went to went down to the um, federal building in Lexington, the entire family and friends for that uh, that impressive um, moment in his life and then I after the the swearing in I went back to the university because I had classes in that afternoon my family was planning um, a reception that night at our home uh, there in Nicholasville but I had classes to attend so as I walked back across the university campus headed toward one of the classroom building. Someone ran down the steps of the journalism building and they were they were yelling, They've shot the president. They've shot the president and 
you know, I was hurrying to class, and I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. Why would anyone say something like that? Mm-hmm. But by the time I got to the classroom building, there was a group surrounding um, someone who had a transistor radio standing in the lobby of the building, and we were listening, indeed, to the news that President Kennedy had been assassinated in Dallas. And so the date of his becoming a judge corresponded to the date that our president was assassinated. It just always was the irony of that occasion, so it was always a bittersweet kind of moment for us. And you were telling me that there was a reception planned later in the day for your dad. That had to be (laughs) not a very nice moment. Well, it it wasn't. The professor, of course, told the class, go home. There will be no school today. And so we drove home. And when I got home, people were already at our house and and gathered there. And I honestly, the closest thing I can uh, describe it uh, as was... Um, those times when there's been a death in the family and, and people have come to your house to mourn with you. And, and it was exactly like that. As we all sat there and just, you know, stunned, as was the rest of the com- country, but right. a particularly poignant moment for the entire family. And um, none of us who were alive will ever forget that. I'll tell you what, if you look back, and, and of course, to go on, your dad served as, as judge... Uh, for several years, chief judge of the district in 1971. I think it was 1984 when he finally retired. But if you look just at that part of his life, from from the time he graduated high school at 13 to when he retired at that position in 1984, he lived four lives <laughs> in all that happened to him. I mean, he was he was had a lot going on from the war to the the judgeship to everything. His life was packed, wasn't it? It really was, and yet. When I think about it, it didn't seem in any way extraordinary or unusual. It was just, you know, he was just my father, and we were just living a very ordinary life and a very blessed life. But it was rather hard for me to ever see him as anything other than daddy, and that was what I always called him. I I never thought of him as the judge and and when you would when you would be introduced or when someone would say to me your father's the judge and I would say yes but I, I couldn't quite see it through their eyes it was right. extraordinary fun loving person he could be very judicial if, if, when it was required but he also <laughs> had, a, had a, a a very wicked sense of humor and uh, I think uh it was just—it was a lot of fun to be around. Before I ask you this next question, I want to, uh, and we have not at all meant to listen the role of your mother in this whole life because she was very important too. Mary Tom was um, a member of the Lena. Phillips Business Women's Club, a charter member in the Women's Club. She was on the Red Cross, as you said, uh, very active in that. And, of course, raising two children was the biggest job that I'm sure that she had. One word, how would you describe your mother? Well, I think I need two words. A term I've come to know later, steel magnolia. She was an extremely strong woman, strong woman of, of mind, of uh, faith, of responsibility, She, but she was also a people person. She just loved people, knew folks all through the community in every age group and delighted in, in conversing with them and, and working alongside them and meeting them and socializing and uh, just a all-around uh, good person. She used to write the wonderful letters in those days when I was away at school or even 
after I was married and, and living in, um, in Richmond, she was a great letter writer, note writer, and when I was in college, my, my college roommates would go and pick up my mail because they always hoped that there was a letter from my mother there, and they wanted me to read them her letter because it was clever and fun and interesting and, and just... Uh, she could, she could make it alive. She, I think she got up early in the morning before she went to work or whatever. She was had gone for the day, and she would sit with her coffee and write, write us letters. And they were just wonderful. I, I have fortunately saved a lot of them, and I treasure them. I'm sure you do. Same question about your dad. Well, he was, I would say, if I had to put a word, I would say Irish. <laughs> and Monaghan is certainly, certainly that. Yes, his um, his great grandfather came from Ireland to the United States, and and I think of this was probably um, around or about the Great Potato Famine in Ireland, and the, the family um, uh, identified closely with that Irish that Irish sense of humor, storytelling, whole persona. I, I've come to appreciate it even more because my husband's family was. Irish, and he he grew up in Ireland from the time he was eight years old until he finished his medical school training. And so I I understand the Irish um, emotional uh, types and the stories and the the traditions. And it's uh, yes, my father was very Irish. You know, I, I've always treasured the fact that I got to know your dad and knew your mom too, but I knew him even better. In 1986, there was a couple of groups of veterans of EFW the. Who were very nice to ask me to chair a group to raise money to build a monument to put on the courthouse yard. And the people in this community were very, very gracious in their donations. In fact, uh, we raised the money that it would take about six months earlier than we had planned. And uh, we were very fortunate that day that we had the unveiling of that monument to have four POWs help with that unveiling your dad being one of them and uh, that's how I guess I got to know him although my family knew him well before that and then in the court system in my current job too and and I can tell you that Bernard Monahan is one of those people who I have always been greatly respected in this county and the state for that matter, but especially Jessamine County, and the contributions that he made to our country and our lives. And you uh, should be very proud of him and your mother and, and what all they meant to us here. I truly am, and I just always feel honored when um, their lives or contributions are referenced in the community because it, it is a, it's a wonderful legacy and, and a very nice way to um, to recall those that are no longer with good people and i appreciate having the opportunity to to finally meet you so to speak although we have not seen each other in person we have spoken it's uh it's been a great thing to be able to to get to know you a little bit better too thank you so much pat for being with us this morning i appreciate you taking the time to look back on your parents lives well you're quite welcome i very much enjoyed it and i'll look forward to meeting you in person when we can we can reminisce some more the 
interview that you just heard was a rebroadcast of one with Mary Pat Monahan Mullins, who we found out this week passed away. And we want to take this time to wish her family the deepest of sympathies. Mary Pat, even though she didn't live in Kentucky anymore, had strong roots back to Jessamine County and would visit often. And we will certainly miss her and appreciate the fact that we had the opportunity to interview her about her family. It's our appreciation that we give to you for coming in every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock for all things Jessamine. We'll do it again next week. I also appreciate you tuning me in on my regular show every weekday morning from 6 until 8 here on Jess FM 105.9.